Welcome to SelfDiscoveryMedia.com, where we discover the communities that are making a difference in the lives of others. Our self-discovery is something we are all making on our life's journey. Here you will find the people that will be your guidance, that will be your inspiration, that will be there for you in support on your journey of life. Do enjoy. Our next show is... Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome back to another show, Choose Positive Living, right here on selfdiscoverymedia.com. I'm your host, Sarah Troy, and my guest is Jonathan Jakubowski. I hope I pronounced that right. Did it. <laughs> Bill, I did, I did. <laughs> Score. Um, yes. Bellwether Blues, the effective antidote. What does he mean by that? Well, he says that Americans are living in an era of increasing political turmoil where tensions are heightened and the conflict is a new normal. Having grown up in this environment, he says millennials know nothing different. Their experiences have driven them towards disillusionment, frustration with the political norm. In some, they have caught a case of the bellwether blues. The resulting skepticism has brought out one of uh, out the worst in those who engage in the political dialogue, only adding fuel to the fire. So in the era where the political world is ablaze with hatred, Bill Weather Blues offers a highly effective antidote. Rather than allowing the ends to justify the means, Jonathan encourages conservatives to rethink their approach to reaching the millennial generation. Fight or fight might be a natural response to conflict, but there is a third option for conservatives if they choose. Make friends. <gasps> what a concept. And this uh, counterproductive approach is gleaned, um, gleaned through the stories of uh, seven millennials in Wood Country, Ohio, who changed their voting, voting preferences from liberal to conservative. So uh, make friends. Well, that's a big one. <laughs> Weren't your mamas telling you to do that when you were little? <laughs> Welcome to uh, the you show, You know, it kind of takes time to, for that advice to resonate. You know, we don't listen to our parents until we finally have our own kids. So yes. that's probably what comes from. Yes, and my kids don't have their own kids yet. So I'm still not being listened to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it is a simple concept, isn't it? You know, it, uh, the old saying, you get more with honey than you do with vinegar. Yeah, I do. I uh, actually read a proverb this morning, Proverbs 16. And it says, uh, I think something like the words, words that are sweet, like honeycomb are rich to the soul. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a lot of truth to being able to get past the walls and the skepticism that exists in an interpersonal relationship with words that are kind and just. And when we live in an era where social media fits of rage are our everyday norm, it's even more refreshing to have a voice that comes in that speaks compassionately to you. Um, I've been through the rage thing and it never suited me. It always made me feel disconglobulated and, and just uh, um, empty and, and consequently sick. And it's frustrating because you may spend that anger, but nothing is resolved out of it. Not to say that sometimes you, you know, you need to have a rant and rage or you need to get angry and spend the anger. It's just a question of who do you spend it at? You know, it's uh, we're inclined to attack people to get rid of our frustration and attack what we don't know, or attack what is different. And sometimes we're just mad and we're going to attack everybody because I'm mad and I don't know what to do with it. And when I, um, I'm looking, you know, from where I am into America right now, 
I'm seeing an, an awful lot of that. And I have a new saying that actionism is the new activism. And, mm. you know, actinism, it, activism is very much that kind of ranting and raving about what is wrong. Actionism is stepping up and setting it right. And we need the anger because that ignites people into action, which is great. But we've got to be careful how we impose that anger on other people because they've had enough of it and they would rather that you be inspirational and invitational to your cause or to what needs to change rather than this rant and raving. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I think I agree. I, I had not heard that before. Actionism versus activism. It's mine. Hey, way to go. Way to go, Sarah. That's impressive. Well, I would say this. I, I found myself sitting uh, in Paris. I was on a business trip and I was writing the edits to one of the last chapters of Bellwether Blues. And I was right in front of the Arc de Triomphe on Champs-Élysées. It was an incredible place mm. to write this chapter. And I was making a comparison between the French Revolution of 1789 and the American Revolution of 1776. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's some stark differences between that. And the French Revolution was very much a mob mentality. It mm -hmm. was activism to the ends of letting anything go. Mm -hmm. And a lot of thousands, tens of thousands of people had their heads chopped off because there was no coordination. There were no principles or values that undergirded that movement. Whereas the American Revolution of 1776 was tied to this document this document that you see behind me, the Declaration of Independence. And the words in it were, were uh, recognizing that our rights come from a higher source. Mm -hmm. That no parliament, no Congress, no Supreme Court is able to take those rights away from us because they come from God. Yeah. And there's some beautiful lines that maybe some of your listeners have heard that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they have been endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and that among these are life liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm -hmm. So those are just a few small words from a document that is in many ways glorious and inspirational. And I'm afraid that much of the uh, American electorate, much of the, my generation, millennials and younger, we've found ourselves in a position where we become so skeptical and disillusioned mm -hmm. that we don't know where to turn. And that turns into blind activism, tearing down statutes, uh, going after people that we don't even know. We don't know what they represent or what they stand for. So I, I like the way that you've clarified activism versus actionism. And I would also use that to contrast the 1789 French Revolution and the 1776 American Revolution. Mm. You know, um you know, yes, all right, there are statues that we, we put up there and in, in Revere, and then we look at what they stand for. But instead of tearing them down, how about replaque them, right? And an education, this person got their fame and glory through this, and this action is no longer accepted. And then perhaps put beside it a statue of of liberty in some way, of freedom, of unison, and, and show the difference. Tearing down history only repeats history because nobody's got any reference. But putting history aside where we are today or where we should be today gives people a reference of understanding what was and what is now. And I feel that by destroying history, we are, we're, go we're going to repeat it. What do you feel? Yeah, you know, anarchy is what we're seeing in these mm -hmm. streets and in these corners where we're, we're pulling these statues down. And, and anarchy leads to totalitarianism. Yes. And we need to look further than many of the nations that have suffered from totalitarian regimes that have blindly made might 
as right. Mm-hmm. And when might makes right, you have a majoritarian approach to government, which leads to the abolishment of rights for many innocent victims and innocent populations, people that don't have a voice. They're the ones that, that are ultimately the ones that will most suffer from it. And you look at Venezuela. I use yes. France for the the first thing that the Hugo Chavez movement did was they tore down the statues of history mm-hmm. and they rewrote history according to their narrative. Mm-hmm. Well, what followed was a massive movement where their power came into play and they took over the legislature and then they began to take away the rights of the people. They began to take over all of the free, to, free enterprises. Uh, they began to integrate uh, forced speech on their people. They began to take away weapons from those that disagreed with them. And what do we have now? We have a Venezuela that is in mass chaos, in terror, many people suffering under a regime that crushes them with despotism. Now, that's the problem that I see with this anarchist approach towards revolutionizing things. They're not patient enough to recognize that we need to make decisions on the basis of right. Yeah. Right needs to make might. And that is really the, the beautiful nature of the principles of the Declaration of Independence, of the vision for government that America has not fully nor perfectly pursued or brought about. But the reason why I'm, I'm, I wrote this book, Bellwether Blues, was because I wanted to restore some of those principles, some of those higher ideals to call my generation, the millennial generation, who yearns for freedom, to understand that freedom must be tied to principles that are eternal, that apply to everybody. And even everybody. if we don't like something, mm-hmm. if we don't enjoy or appreciate something, let's understand more about uh, what it is that we're so angry about and get deeper into conversation, understand that the processes created, the checks and balances are there in order to protect speech and to protect those that might disagree with us. And and you know, there's this thing called free will and free speech. And uh, we have to be mindful and responsible of our speech. If we are disagreeing with something, there are ways to articulate that without being condemning or damning or hatred. And I think what we've done is just gone straight, push the button to hatred. Uh, If you don't agree with me, you are wrong and I hate you and you're going to hell. That is not conversation. Everybody has a right to a point of view and only when you put that point of view on the table respectfully can everybody see what everybody's talking about and probably realize that there is a common denominator there, that there's a thread between everybody's conversation. Now you've got something to work with. But when you've got the yelling and the abuse at each other, um, and I'm right, you're wrong, and where is the conversation of that? Where are the solutions in that? Nobody can hear anyone above the hatred, and that hatred loses voice and takes up arms. And so we have to be very, very mindful again back how we use our anger. You can stand up for something that is right. Look at the Me Too movement. Look at the environment. Look at Black Lives Matter. I would actually change it. I might get criticism here, but to Black Rights Matter because all lives matter. doesn't matter what color you're in, but black rights matter, as all human rights matter. Um, nobody should take the rights away from anyone, um, anybody, just because based on the color of their skin or their religion or their sex or anything else. So I think calm, cool, collected conversations need to be brought to the table. But can, do you see that happening? I, I see a lot of millennials that I know, my, my children's age, which is 30, um, 31, 35, and 37, lots of deep conversations going on. But are we seeing them manifest into anything? 
Well, there's a couple of things that I would say to that. Uh, the millennial generation is one of the most maligned generations in you know, the, the present conversation. It's also the largest generation in America. Millennials are aged between 24 and 39 years of age, having uh, been born between 1981 and 1996. And the thing about millennials is, is they're quite different. Millennials on the coast in California, Oregon, Washington, or New York, and Massachusetts are very different from millennials in my state, the state of Ohio or the state of Kentucky, or the state of Arizona, or the state of Texas. So we have to understand there must be some nuance to this generation. Mm-hmm. Not all millennials are the same. But what I've seen through empirical evidence is as the left has gone so far to the left that they've abandoned this statement that I, I might disagree with you, but I will defend your right to say it even to the death. Right. That was a principle of classical liberalism from Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, dates way back into the 18th century that was brought forward in many ways by a lot of the, the champions of the Democratic Party, including JFK, for example. Uh, well, that principle has been abandoned entirely. entirely. And now they're using forced speech and, and power to try to, to force people into a specific mold that they want. And if they don't, you are an enemy. If yeah. you aren't an ally, you're an enemy. Mm. Uh, that's a false dichotomy. And it mm-hmm. represents a false choice for many millennials who find significant distaste in that. Yeah. And these millennials that are in mainland America especially see that. And they're bothered by it and they're frustrated by it. And while they can't yet stomach maybe the ideas of voting for conservative principles because of the way they've been raised their entire lives and their Twitter feed and their Facebook Mm -hmm. feed, what MSNBC says, that's the job of conservatives to use persuasive conversation to win them over. And as I looked at stories in my county, which is a swing county, Wood County, Ohio, one of 59 counties in the entire country, in the entire nation of America, that really decide what the president looks like. We're, we are that perennial county where every time that we vote 2000, 2004, 2008, 12, 16, we go with the president. So essentially I'm in the county, in the state that will decide the president. Well, you look at the voting patterns of millennials in my county. And what I saw is when individuals stepped into their lives and provided mentorship, compassion, conversation, when they communicated principles in a winsome matter, it really affected the perspective of these millennials to the point where they change their voting persuasion. Mm-hmm. Um, inviting people into the conversation, be willing to listen to them, be willing to hear them, uh, being willing to address to the best of your ability. Um, I think also what's happening a great deal is uh, morals have been abandoned in so many ways. And this is, I know you're a very religious person, but this is even beyond religion. This is just human dignity. And we are seeing things in power in office right now that we would not accept from our regular human being the behavior the speech the actions we would not accept it whatsoever yet it seems to be that when people get into a state of power uh, they have liberty to do whatever they want and say and act in any way they want however a reflection it has um or to whoever it damns and i think i know from, from the millennials i know that that's a lot of frustration from them of you know why are they allowed to get away with this what is in place to protect their speech but not give me my speech and i think somewhere along the line systems are broken badly broken all along the line we're looking at education we're looking at police force we're looking at healthcare. we're looking at the political and i think everything needs to kind of be put in the wash and come out and start anew um and I think it's going to take the millennials and the next generation down to be the ones to do it, 
because I know you guys are fed up and don't want this bickering and this hatred and this demeaning, this demoralizing, this pulling down anymore. You want to hear articulate conversation of what is the solution to the problem and how do we resolve it? You know, perhaps I think one of the, the concerns I have with the millennial generation is, um, you know, there's terms like uh, snowflakes and, and somebody using that is probably going to shut, shut you down right away. Nevertheless, millennials have to learn to hear hard things. They have to learn to hear truths. And the, the people that can deliver those truths are the people that they most trust. It's going to be hard for them to trust somebody that's on the other side of a screen uh, typing at them some message of vitriol and anger and rage. Uh, having said that, they don't have the right to then go and try and hurt that person or malign them or name them. Obviously, you have the freedom to do whatever you want from a speech vantage point, but a lot of millennials have taken that and turned that into violence. There's a story yeah. in Bellwether Blues at the very end of the book in chapter 10, where I talk about a young man who was encouraged by the likes of Hillary Clinton and Eric Holder and others through their speech talking about, you need to go out and start using violence, take them below the knees, go at them, get up in their faces, shame them when they're in public things that Maxine Waters was saying. He was inspired by these things and thought, well, I'm not doing enough to support this worldview, so I need to take action. Well, he found himself in a post office and there were thousands of dollars worth of these slate cards that are used to uh, share county candidate information with people throughout our county. And he decided to start taking those slate cards and tearing them up and throwing them in the trash. I mean, that's a federal crime. You're tampering with uh, federal mail. Well, I, I was in the story because I was able to confront this individual and in the conversation, um, as I recognized what he was doing, he was taking this and saying, I must take action because I so disagree with, with President Trump that I'm going to go and destroy this stuff. Now, that, that, is, that is improper, it is illegal, and it is wrong. So I gave him an wrong option. Approach. <laughs> I, can I can send you to the county sheriff right now who will take you in front of a judge and you're going to have a record that's going to be problematic with some serious fines and maybe jail time tied to it. Or you can come and have lunch with me and we're going to have a conversation and I'm going to explain to you why conservative principles, as Ronald Reagan once stated, are the last best hope for America. And these principles of life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness tied to this golden triangle of freedom of faith and family, virtue, freedom, these things together lived out through policies will allow your generation and generations to follow, to live a life that many of our ancestors have been able to live and to spread those out to the masses of people that have not maybe been able to embrace those opportunities. That's what free enterprise leads to as opposed to socialism. Well, we had a two hour long conversation and I learned so much about this individual and he learned a whole lot about history that he never knew. He had no idea that the Republican party was formed in 1854 to abolish slavery. That was the purpose of the founding of the party. Now things like that really enlighten individuals that have an entirely different worldview that's been framed by an agenda that comes deeply from the left, from an animus and from totalitarian approaches to speech. Do you not think though at the present moment though that the Republicans are not representing themselves very well? So I think that there's a challenge. Uh, there are, we, we in many ways are shooting ourselves in the foot uh, and just some of the examples of, of maybe how we communicate. But I think one of the challenges that we have is we're facing this world of fake news. We live in a postmodern era and there are many forces that are seeking to guide speech to their specific agenda, the New York Times, CNN. So the, the fake news is a real thing. I have no doubt about that. The, the misinformation that is out there is problematic. Now, many would argue, well, you look at Fox News, well, that's the only example they have. They have a Fox News example. Well, where's the rest? Where's the rest of those truth speakers that are out there? So one of the things that I've seen is conservatives have adopted the truth-telling side of the equation, which we have to. We have to share the truth. We must share the truth at all costs. 
but I think we can do it more gracefully. I think we can do it tactfully. I think we can do it in an engaging manner. And that's why Bellwether Blues is really written to the Mr. and Mrs. Conservative sitting at home asking, what can I do for the younger generations? What can I do for my nation to help persuade them? Because I'm very concerned about the direction this nation is headed as I look at that generation, the values that they believe in and stand for. And I think through those conversations, we have a chance as Republicans to be more effective at communicating why our principles represent that last best hope that Ronald Reagan spoke about. And one of the things I would just say, Sarah, if you don't mind, as I look at uh, the way that messaging uh, from the the party's standpoint has been brought forward in the last decade or two decades, uh, it's been very problematic because we we talk about the the rich business owner, Mm -hmm. the guy that has lots of money, why tax cuts might help him employ people. Millennials are incredibly compassionate, many millennials, Mm -hmm. and they've taken, for example, they take jobs with pay cuts because they have a vision for being part of a cause. Mm -hmm. They also value freedom. But the messaging of Republicans has lacked this recognition of combining those two. Rather than talking about the business owner, I want to talk about the single mom in the inner city who is fighting for her life, who has overcome a minimum wage job to become a manager of a franchise and is rising her children to break that, those bonds, the chains of multi-generational poverty. And she can only do it through free enterprise because long-term welfare, socialism, it's going yeah. to destroy the future for those kids. That is the way we go about communicating. Yeah. Yes. Giving everybody an opportunity. Um, we've, we're seeing most certainly an imbalance. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, and I think what COVID has done at the present moment, by the way, for the CNN, I have a saying, um, they take a pimple and make it into a volcanic eruption. So something that really isn't very important was just meal of school suddenly is this eruption of mistruths and hysteria because I think fear sells. It keeps everybody in control and it mm. stops people thinking for themselves. But I think what COVID has done at the present moment has shown us who really are the true heroes. And, you know, for so long, it's being the big CEOs of this company and that company or, you know, high political people and people have meant to be, that is what you're meant to revere. That is what you're meant to aspire to. And yet here, who have been the people that have saved us during this time period? The the janitors, the grocery workers, the truck drivers, the the forefront medical people who are not getting uh, even the tools that they need in order to do the work and are dropping like flies themselves. We're seeing all the people that are there every day working on minimum wage out there putting themselves at risk to provide food for us, safety for us, transportation for us, and everything else for us. We've seen for so long such an imbalance, and I think that COVID has been a gift for us in many ways to re-look at where is where are the heroes, where are the people that we should be paying attention to. Teachers, how many people having homeschooled their, te- uh, their own kids now saying, I worship teachers, and we're underpaying them. So I think there's a shift happening at the present moment of how we are valuing people, how we are valuing different jobs, how we are being grateful for what we do have. Because only when things are taken away do we step into gratitude for what we have. And uh, it's a really good lesson right now. How are you seeing this transpire at the moment? Well, I think you have a really good point. Uh, Looking at one of the stories in Bellwether Blues, it's a guy named Aaron Lawrence who grew up in inner city Cleveland. And while I was on an airplane uh, coming back home and I was editing his chapter, um, I was just thinking about how much of an amazing dad he had. He was one of the few kids, the only person he knew in his entire high school of his friends, his peer group that had a dad in the home. He lived in a very rough area in Cleveland, Ohio with a lot of crime and violence and gangs. And his dad was a major influence on his life. And you can just see that through his story. Well, I received a text when I stepped off of the plane that Mr. Lawrence had died. 
And I, I thought to myself, wow, what, what, a, what an amazing legacy this man has left. His son and future generations are going to be able to look back at his example of bravery and heroism, which is the mundane things of life, being a dad and stepping into your, yes. your children's lives and sacrificing. It is that, that Aaron forever, he's not going to look to some superhero, some right. politician, some business owner as his hero. He's going to look at his dad and he's going to say, my dad is the one that set the path for me. And that's why, you know, I, these principles that matter so much involve family. And I, I think you're right. I think COVID-19 has really made us focus on those relationships closest to us. And I believe that the millennial generation might be the most isolated generation. In many cases, a lot of millennials are imprisoned in a state of their own loneliness. They're behind screens all day long. They're on yes. cell phones all day long. They have apps that connect them with people. They've lost the art of com communication and authentic relationship. And that's why it's the job of conservative leaders to step into their lives, provide mentorship. My life would not be where it is today were it not for older people that came into my life and said, hey, you matter. I care yeah. about you. Let me invest in your life. Let me provide mentorship ways forward so you can avoid the pitfalls that maybe I fell into. If conservatives start to do that, they will effectively persuade this generation in a way they can't even begin to imagine. Mm. You know, one of the things that I'm loving from a personal point of view as a podcaster um, is we're seeing everybody now online doing their shows and whereas the people would come in, in for an interview on these talk shows, you know, um, you know, I like The Daily Show and Colbert and things like this. They would be there two or three minutes and it would be a pitch and then gone and then there'd be somebody else. And now we're seeing through their podcast shows, conversations are going deeper. They're going longer. They're being more relevant um, because this is what people are wanting. They want to see people in their own environment, being relaxed, being themselves and, and just speaking from the heart and speaking their truth. And from that, we are learning. So I think, you know, podcasting is going to be, it, it is become, has become the medium now of where people can truly listen to people on what they really represent and what they really are inviting people to do and the mentorship and the wisdom that has been shared through it. And it's wonderful to see those conversations taking place. And uh, I think what we're seeing is millennials stepping up and saying, I haven't felt heard or I haven't felt I've even had someone to talk to. And now I'm actually feeling that there's somebody speaking to me or there's somebody I can speak to about the problem. Are you seeing that? Or is it just from my perspective as a podcaster, I'm seeing that? I think you have a, you have a very important perspective, Sarah. And I, I do think that a deeper conversation matters, whether you're listening to a podcast or in, you know, in personal communication. I would just say that I think I'd love to see that podcasting uh, become personal in terms of a human relationship and an interaction. And yeah. I think the more that we can encourage uh, those kind of interactions, the more we can influence that generation, because I, I do believe the millennials yearn for truth. They, they yearn for authenticity yes. in a world where there's so many perspectives authored. That's something that they deeply desire. And uh, we have the, the ability to offer that through this yeah. interpersonal communication. And, and one of the things that I get asked often on, on the interviews I'm on is, well, it seems like kind of an impossible task. How am I going to convince the Antifa minded statue pulling down millennial who's woke? How am I going to do that? And I said, it's, it's not that complex. I mean, you have a millennial in your life. 
a, a grandson, a granddaughter, a niece, a nephew, a neighbor. There's a millennial in your life who desperately needs you to step into their life. Yeah. And as you build that relationship, and to your point, Sarah, as you listen very well, mm -hmm. if you can be a you-centered leadership is about beginning the conversation with listening. If I can listen in the, the first conversation, the second come back, more questions and more, mm -hmm. more listening, that third conversation, they're going to want to hear you. They're going to hear what you yeah. have to say because they see that you value them. And as that currency of trust develops, you start to see this beautiful thing develop. Millennials are desperate for that. And that's my clarion call today to many of those that are out there asking, what can I do? It's develop authentic relationship. And you know, that means authentic relationship with yourself. A millennial can see a fraud a mile away, right? Uh, you know, it's, if you do not believe it yourself, if you're not coming from a space of heart, I do many, many business shows. And the delight of these business shows is that business now isn't about profit at the expense of people and planet. It is now invest in the people use uh, in better resources from the planet and give back and the profit will come and that when it comes from your heart then people will want to purchase from you want to do business from you and we're seeing that changing so much in industry now and in, in some parts of the world in government as well speak earnestly from your heart from what you believe in of why you care and people will be more eager to listen to you. Well, there was a, uh, a guy 2000 years ago who loved us enough to come onto this earth to, to give his life for us. And the message of love is a message of sacrifice. When Jesus came and died on the cross and was set free, which is the foundation of my faith, it informs me that I must step out and into other people's lives to tell them how much they matter. Uh, scripture talks about the God's creation and how he formed us in the womb. Before we were formed in the womb, he knew us. Before we were ever called by name, he set us apart and he chose us to fulfill this destiny and purpose he had for us. And I believe that that example of sacrifice must inform us. And by the way, Jesus spent most of his time with 12 people. It was a small group of people. I think often we think that the best way to approach influencing people is through the masses of mm -mm. social media. A thousand followers or 10,000 followers. Yep. The most persuasive way is that modeled by Jesus himself, which was 12 people in a very close interrelational circle. And through the conversation, through the authentic relationship, through the times spent, he was able to create a movement that has shaped the entire right. world. Exactly. And, um, you know, people say to me, how many people listen to your shows? And I got all those that are ready to hear. All I can do is put them out there, ready for people in library, you know, Orchard of Wisdom library here. And when ready, when people are ready to hear that, they will click on. We can't force people, but we can leave the material there ready for them. Easy to find when they're ready to hear. And there's no point preaching to people. They shut off immediately. But when we speak from a heart and truth and, and a, a place of compassion and collaboration, now they're open to listening and opening to participate. So, you know, um, God is love. And love is not hate. Love is kindness, love is caringness, love is compassion, love is collaboration. It is a vibration and a frequency that will make things grow. And so when we step into a place of love, we're stepping into God's love and we are then being God's love in everything that we do, in everything that we are. So if we're so angry at the world, maybe what we have to do is look into ourselves and go, how can I release this anger from me and find the love within me, for me? Because to love yourself is what God wants you to do. To be abundant in that love, so it cut, the cup runneth over and spills on other people, is what love is all about. 
It's to be abundant in it so you can share that love with everyone else. That is God's love. But, but we're looking outside all the time for solutions. We're looking outside for someone to fix us instead of going inside into our hearts and our souls and taking that journey inwardly and getting rid of what baggage we're carrying that does not suit us and looking at the compassion of self so we can bring it to other people. And then I think we will see a far more harmonious world. So it's don't spend the anger out. Deal with it from the inside so that you can release the love. Well, sorry, I appreciate your message. I would say that the two greatest commandments that, uh, that are talked about by Jesus himself is you love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then you love your neighbor as yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't love your neighbor if you don't love yourself. And God teaches us that. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. I also recognize the limitations of my capabilities. I recognize that I fall short. I recognize that my, my flesh and, and the things that have led me to, fall, to go astray, what has this happened throughout my life, means that I am, I am a immoral and I fall short in many occasions. But that's why I believe in God's power. The power that God gives to me to live a life that is virtuous, to live a life that is whole, and if you look at this from a public policy vantage point, even for those that don't believe in God, even for those that don't believe in, in Judeo-Christian values, one of the most amazing things about the history of America was this combination between faith, virtue, and freedom. It's called mm -hmm. the golden, golden triangle of freedom. There was a thing called the Great Awakening that happened in the uh, 18th century. That Great Awakening led many people to recognize that their sinful state could not be solved by their own, uh, their own stepping into virtue. They needed to accept the forgiveness of Christ and then be set free. And that recognition changed them from the inside out. And they became a virtuous population. The virtue followed faith. Many people that were faith-filled lost lived lives of virtue. Well, as we know, freedom can only come when you have, which freedom is essentially less government. The, the bigger the government, the more limited the individual freedom, right? Uh, the, the smaller the government, the bigger the individual freedom. The larger the government, the smaller the individual freedom. So that balance meant that as people followed the law and abided by the law, we needed less government regulation to step in to solve all the issues. Right. So the combination between those three things mattered significantly. And it's something that we need to restore in America. We want to see an awakening, a transformation Ooh. of soul. Yes. People that follow that aren't out there, out there to kill their neighbors or to steal their homes or to, to use tyranny and power and anarchy to solve these issues. We need to see a restoration of, of virtues and values and yeah. a family and combination of family. As that grows and this virtue grows, then that, that allows us to have freedom and freedom is what millennials yearn for. Right. And, you know, and to recognize that we are not all the same. You know, we are different colors. We're different faiths. Um, we're different sexes. We've come from different uh, economic backgrounds, but that doesn't make us any less than. Um, and if we do step into love, it doesn't matter under which dominion, for God is love and God is also freedom. There aren't any boundaries or boxes or conditions. If you are with love, in love, then you are spreading that love. And one of the things I firmly believe, absolutely totally agree with you, government has got way too big and way too powerful and uh, has forgotten that it's serving the people. And I think very much going back to the community serving themselves, the village. The village was only as strong as everybody's participation. Even the village idiot had a, a part to play in it. Everybody had a role to play in the strength of that village. If we go back to looking at our own communities and understanding that the thriving of that community comes from all of our participation and being there for each other with love, with caring, with kindness, we would have stronger communities and less dysfunction 
and we would see a far more harmonious place. And I think that millennials most certainly have the rational to do that. I think they can see the solutions in doing that. And I think it's just stepping into doing that. And if you want your voice heard, speak out. Well, the conversation is a really interesting one. It's, it's one that, that is not going to be solved easily. It's not going to be solved quickly. Uh, but, but I do believe throughout the course of history that uh, where, where, um, where the Christian faith has flourished, that usually has meant incredible freedom, an increase in freedom, especially in America. The American version of freedom really came from this ethic and belief that because all men are created equal, all men, women, to your point, all races, that because we have these ideals that are there, we have set the tone for how we need to live our lives. And as we follow the pursuit of those ideals, we're able to express that freedom and spread it out throughout any community that rises up. And I think the foundation of that is what is, is kind of cracked and challenged. And that's mm. why I talk about that golden triangle of freedom. Yeah. We have to restore that and understand that in the process of so doing, I think we'll see a great impact in the millennial generation to come. Yeah. You know, do unto others as you hope they would do unto you. Don't treat them cruelly, then they won't treat you cruelly. Treat them kindly, they'll treat you kindly. I mean, it's, that's the way the energy flows. Um, you know, we're seeing today a lot of millennials that are stepping up um, in politics uh, their voices are being heard they're beating their old status quo in, in a way that is mind-blowing and uh, we're seeing a lot of women step up and there's a lot of common sense to them and I think for a long time we've lost that common sense we've lost that you know the ego stepped in and just became so big it lost its its understanding of what it was here for and a lot of common sense needs to be brought back to the table and from the millennials that i've spoken to yes they speak common sense they speak what they feel but as i said they, they're still looking at that way to place action what would be your invitation to millennials right now in stepping up and being part of that solution because they are our future leaders right now at the age group in the 30s you are our leaders for the next generation so what would be your invitation to them right now in stepping up and being part of that solution well, I think the first thing is to pursue truth. Uh, to your point, common sense, you can't have common sense unless you have a foundation of truth and understanding what truth is. And I think so many millennials have uh, not gone on that pursuit. They haven't pursued an understanding of the foundation of America. They haven't read the biographies of those individuals that made these incredible sacrifices to bring things forward. They haven't read the Frederick Douglasses of the world, the speeches that he gave. They haven't been able to admire uh, many of the historical figures that have led us to have an incredible nation with incredible benevolence. And at the same time, they haven't read the stories of those that made wrong decisions. You know, as human mm -hmm. beings, there's, there's right and there's wrong, and our stories are filled with it. We haven't been able to understand that fully. So to any millennial out there that's considering running for office, the first thing I think they need to understand is what, why do you believe what you believe? You know, what's your why? What's the conviction that goes into yeah. it? You need to understand the answer of what is the role of government? And there's a deeper philosophical foundation that must be answered even before you can get to that point. The other thing I would say is uh, we now live where in this era where generationalism has become the norm. And because I'm young and because I'm told I'm going to lead, I don't need the opinion of the older generations. Right. These divides that have been created have really separated us from the truth. Many older generations have common sense. The, the members of the older generation have lived lives where they've made decisions, they've made mistakes, they've made the right decisions where they've won. Those, that set of knowledge is critical for younger generations to understand. And I've found in my life the brilliance of those that have sacrificed much, that have lived the years ahead of me, have walked the long miles of relationship over the course of their lives. 
they have tremendous knowledge that they can apply to me. So coming at it humbly, understanding your why, understanding the, the deeper sense of what truth is and what the purpose of government is, those are all things that I think need to be exercised before one decides to lead others. Yeah, exactly. The ability to lead yourself for a start. Um, you know, a good leader will inspire other leadership. It's not about one leader leading and lording over people. It's about inspiring that leadership in other people. And, you know, it's, it's all very well having somebody that may be a good speaker. But when it comes down to it, people don't want to just hear the speeches anymore. They want to see what is the action. How can I be a part of it? What can I implement? Because I think we've gone way beyond kind of just speeches. We're wanting solutions. And, you know, right now, uh, America especially is in a state of, you know, of anger. And we're seeing more movements going up. And I'm, I'm I'm starting a movement myself of uh, all children's lives matter. Um, having done many, many a show on the forgotten children, that I think if we invest in our children, the families, you know, as you said, one father in a neighborhood where no fathers were, if we have, help families stay together, help them raise their own children, help them have the ability uh, to earn an income and a house over their heads where they can really utterly invest in their families, we're going to see more of that community, be, community become stable. And instead of throwing away the key, and 70% of uh, people incarcerated are foster children, again, the system is broken. How do we go about to putting it back together? And I think first is the awareness. We do need to speak to the awareness. We do need to speak to what is wrong, but you can't speak to what is wrong without posing a solution of how to put it right. Because now that's the invitation for people to join you in putting it right. So if you're a millennial, speak up. Don't hide behind, don't hide behind the phone. You know, don't just text it to a friend. Form a group, form a, um, um, a meetup, start the conversation. What can you do? How can you participate? How can you get your point of view put across? What other point of views can influence you? It's actionism. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think we can look to, to history and a few examples of cases where um, the nation was headed to a situation of total despair. Look, we can look at England's example, for example, in the 18th century. Uh, over 25%, one, of, one, of, one out of every four single women in England and London was a prostitute. Mm -hmm. The moral decay of, of London in this era in England at large was, was decrepit. There was a lot of vigilante justice, a lot of anarchy. There was a, an entire movement for disheval, upheaval, for the removal of authority. They were headed on a path that was similar to that of France, that France would ultimately follow with the 1789 revolution. But there was one man named William Wilberforce. And William Wilberforce dedicated his life after the acceptance of Christ. He, he had a change of perspective that transformed him. He dedicated his life to two things. One was the abolition of slavery because he recognized that all are created equal in the sight of God. Uh -huh. The second thing was, was he wanted to see a moral revolution that would transform England to bring back morals that would allow people to have family, strong family bonds that would eliminate that statistic that I talked about with single ladies. And he dedicated 40 years of his life in Parliament to see that happen and what occurs, not just through his efforts, but also through the efforts of the Wesley brothers with the Great Awakening. There was a transformation of heart and soul in England. And they say one story, Wesley would be out there speaking and they had all these tens of thousands of coal miners and they would send pamphlets down these coal shafts and all these thousands of coal miners would come out into these open fields. And because the church at that time had rejected uh, the Wesleys from preaching because they weren't tied to the state established church, 
that's where they would go. They would do field preaching. And as these tens of thousands of coal miners would sit there and listen to their words, their faces black with soot. They said they knew that the awakening had taken England by force when the thousands of these black-faced coal miners began to cry. The yeah. tears reaching their hearts and their faces turned white as a result of the tears. They said that's when the new England was changed and transformed. And that led England into a new era, the Victorian era, which would transform uh, much of England's moral decay and would lead to the abolition of slavery, the first nation to do so. So I look at that example and I ask, what, what can we repeat? from the, the good things that have occurred throughout history? What can, what can we look at when we see what Wilberforce did in the public arena, in the, in the arena where there were people out there asking questions about how to be engaged? Well, he, he brought them back to the foundation of truth. He brought them back to the, the recognition that we have a purpose in life and that that purpose in life is not to be destroyed by totalitarian authority. It's not to be pursued through anarchy, through the tearing down of statutes, through the ruining of people's lives. There's a better way. Yeah, there is. So when are you running for president? I am not running for president. and uh, I think no, it's in your future. <laughs> well, you're, you're very I mean, kind to say that. You're, so. you're a politician I would prefer to listen to. <laughs> you know, it's, I, we need somebody, in tact, uh, uh, somebody who is articulate, somebody who is most certainly passionate about what you do, and, and somebody whose who's calling is unicism. You want to bring people back to unicism, whether it is through the Christian faith or just through the, the love of God, whatever their God may be, but back to unison as, you know, the, the human family. And I can hear that in you. And if anybody could talk to the millennials, you can. So step into public office. <laughs> well, you know, one of the things that I believe, back to uh, my proverb this morning, Proverbs 16, it says, though a man plans his way in his heart, the Lord establishes his steps. Oh, way, gosh, that, yes. <laughs> that, that, yeah. is, uh, that to me is a, uh, it's a significant verse. I want to commit my ways unto the Lord, and, and I want to, to do that with others. I have a, a group of, of men that I fast with. I played football at Bowling Green State University, and a bunch of my teammates are from, uh, they're black Americans from inner city communities. So we decided when we saw the injustices uh, that, that had been occurring over time and the, the questions around uh, how do we transform America and the, the deeper concerns throughout our cities, we said, you know, that the best way to go about something that is, is not been broken, but is millennia old is to really do something about it that goes beyond uh, a simple statement, yeah. beyond a social media post. Let's step into fasting where we are uh, causing ourselves physical pain and standing before God and asking him to step into this situation and to transform our nation. And we've been doing it for about seven weeks now. And I can tell you, Sarah, that the, the power of those prayers, that if you could see my text thread, if you could see the prayers coming from my brothers throughout this country who are with me in this, and to see what God has done to answer those prayers in small ways and now large ways has been absolutely transformational. So as I look at the church broadly, and I know your, your audience is probably not representative of, of, an, of a church, but it's, what I'm it's calling broad, broad it's very broad. What mm -hmm. I'm calling the, for the, your listeners, I want them to know what I'm calling the church to do in America is to fast and to pray. And to step out and step in to live. You talked about the golden rule to live out that golden rule and to step into people's lives in such a way that they see that you care about them and that, mm. that God cares about them even more so. And I think through that process of tearing down the walls that have been built through society intentionally and unintentionally. Uh, I really believe that there can be transformation. And, and I think one of the goals is to see men like William Wilberforce, women that have re recognized the, the, the virtues of life, of motherhood, who have made tremendous investments, stepping into these positions of office and saying, hey, I want to be a servant. Let me be a servant because the greatest amongst us is going to be the servant. As a, but the greatest among you, let him be called, him or her be called your servant. So if we can have leaders that step in with that mentality of servant leadership, I think it's going to make a, a pretty tremendous impact on people's lives.
I do have a little problem with the word servant because servant very often means doing something that is dictated over, but to be of service, I feel is of free will and is of our calling. That's just coming from fair me. Enough. Yeah, fair and, enough. you know, um, it doesn't matter what faith we are and it's believing in a higher power and, you know, through the fasting that you're doing and whichever way you want to do it, you're connecting. You're connecting to God. You're opening up those channels and you are doing this wonderful big word called allowing. And when we step out of selves and we kind of give it up to the higher source and say, this is what I would love to see. This is the picture I would love to see, but I, I am open to receiving of how to paint it. How, and I am allowing you to direct me and use me in whichever way you want me to, to, you, to do that. We, we have lived our life so much through manuals or through somebody else's doctrine, uh, through expectations, through dictation, that we've stopped taking accountability for ourselves or we never had it in the first place. And this inside out journey of connecting with our soul, our heart and our spirit, our God, and trusting and looking at ourselves as beautiful, imperfect gems because nobody is perfect. Everything is imperfect. That's what makes you unique. Our experiences is what gives us the tools and the skills in order to move forward, in order to be able to help someone else coming from that place of knowingness. And if we're willing to release and open up to receive, we will be guided forward on a path in a vibration, in that loving vibration that will open and invite other people into it. As I say, it's become the the instrument that you are. Find your orchestra and play the music that resonates out and invites people to dance. And I think that's where we're at in life right now. We don't want any more anger, any more anarchy, any more violence. We've seen that for so long. We're wanting the harmonious song to sing, to invite our souls to dance, our spirits to be uplifted and our hearts to be engaged. And it doesn't matter which way you come at it as long as you go and embrace it in some form or other. Well, sir, I appreciate your message. You, you, you speak very beautifully. Um, your, your worldview and my worldview are going to have some difference, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, with the Christian worldview, it's, it's an exclusive claim. It's an exclusive claim that Jesus is the answer to all of our problems and solutions. The good news is, is, is I, I think in conversations like these, and one of the things, one of the reasons why is I've traveled the world, I've been to Southeast Asia, Africa, Latin America, I've met many people of, of many different faiths and backgrounds, and I, I hold fast to my conviction and belief that Jesus came and he died and he resurrected from the grave, and it is his solution. In fact, I look at this analogy where around the world, there are people at the base of the mountain, and all humans want to arrive at, at some, whatever they call heaven, at this vision of heaven at the top of the mountain. There's only one meta narrative, one story in the world. Uh, that allows for God himself to come down the mountain to take us on his shoulders and carry us up because getting up that mountain is impossible for human beings because we're, we're full of sin and we're, we're, we fall short. Um, and I recognize that and I stand behind that truth claim and always will. And the Bible talks about John 1 14 that Jesus came full of grace and truth. So it's my duty to share the truth and not to back down from it because I so strongly recognize that that is the foundation of my life, the mm -hmm. foundation of absolute truth. I believe in absolutes, I uh, definitively do, but also to share it with grace. And mm -hmm. when we come at it from a, a public sector vantage point, a pluralistic society can only flourish when free will is offered. Exactly. So, so even for those that disagree with me, I'm fighting for their right to believe what they believe in. 
But as I know in Bellwether Blues, there's three different common types of government. Obviously, there's been very nuanced, varied nuances to it. But one is those nations that have been covenanted with God. And that's a theocracy. Think of Iran, modern day Iran, mm-hmm. or think of Israel of the past, where for you to be a member, a participating member of the, this nation, you must believe in the faith that is espoused by the, the constitution of mm-hmm. that nation, right? And if, if you don't believe that, then you can't be a part of society and you're rejected, maybe killed or imprisoned. Mm-hmm. The other nation is those nations that are covenanted without God. Think of North Korea or China or the Soviet Union, where if you had a faith in God, many Christians persecuted, martyred, killed, because of their belief in God and other faiths as well. I mean, think of the Uyghurs in China and the persecution that they're facing today because they have a, a faith that is contradicting of the state narrative. The beautiful thing about nations like America and Canada is that we're a pluralistic society. And America specifically was covenanted under God. And what that means is that we recognize that the lawgiver, the laws of nature and of nature's God is the, the first few lines of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume amongst the powers of the earth, the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them. That's the first paragraph of the Declaration of Independence. It's calling for the laws of nature, meaning we recognize the lawgiver has given us these laws and we believe in the lawgiver, but any member of society, even if they don't believe in God, but they follow those laws, they take care of their neighbor. They don't murder others. They don't rob, they don't steal, they don't cheat. The 10 commandments, essentially, if they follow those laws, they can flourish in society. So that's the the beautiful aspect of America is that we have that pluralistic society. But once people begin to disobey those laws, when they, when they start to, to contradict those things and create anarchy and when might makes right, that's when that, that pluralistic society of human flourishing breaks down. Exactly. So it doesn't matter where you're coming from. It's the game, the common sense. It's, let's, some people don't like the word laws. Okay, call them codes. Codes of conduct. They're common sense. You know, it is, if you hurt your neighbor, you're only hurting yourself. You've got to realize whenever you're hurting someone else, you are ultimately hurting yourself. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I don't want anyone to hurt me. So why am I going to go around hurting anyone else? So, you know, if we can come back to the common sense of the way we treat each other, the way we treat ourselves, we will end up with a society that is just so much kinder to one another. And I still do wish that as a Republican, that you would go and gather all those Republicans up and kind of show them a new way to go. And certainly the next generation of, of Republicans, it might be too late for some of them over there, they're just too entrenched. But we need to see that, that point of view of bringing it back down to, to a common sense, to a code of conduct, to the Ten Commandments, just to uh, an ability to look at things, not from, I've got to protect my own position, which is how we look at Republicans right now. I've got to protect my own position. I can't stand up against what's going on out there. Otherwise, I'll lose my position. You've got to be willing to lose everything, sacrifice everything for the greater good. And uh, I would love you to get in there and uh, have a good talk with them. Have a good conversation with them, okay? Can you make that happen? <laughs> well, we are, we are having conversations you know, all the time. And uh, at the local level, especially, I'm engaged in, in our leaders here. But the reason I wrote Bellwether Blues is, is to really uh, to call out uh, the, the virtues that the, the platform represents and stands for. And uh, I, I think uh, one of the things that um, is challenging today is, is it's not just one side or the other. It's coming from all sides. I Mm -hmm. I told you, uh, Hillary Clinton, Eric Holder, the things that they said that motivated these perverse actions is very clear. It's on the record. Um, So one of the things that you see is in in the public record, 
speaking truth matters. And it's, it's hard to engage authentic relationship, but there's so many people out here who aren't going to be running for public office. So many people that are at home, uh, you know, reading the newspaper or uh, deep in conversations, doing the most heroic things about society, to your point earlier, being moms and dads, uh, being grandmothers and grandfathers. Uh, those are the people that, that I think are receiving this book in mass. And thankfully, it's been taken very well. I've been on 30 plus interviews over the Excellent. last two weeks. Um, so the message is going across the nation from the East Coast to the West Coast, from the North to the South. And uh, while I recognize that, you know, my position uh, as an author might be limited, I want to use that voice to, to stand behind principles that I think give, bring out the better angels of our nature, which is what James Madison would have said in the Federalist Papers. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Oh, we need <laughs> better nature out there for sure. So now how do people buy the book and how do people get hold of you? Uh, well, thank you for asking, sir. I appreciate being on your show. I, I am honored by the invitation. It means a lot. My pleasure. Uh, so you can find uh, the, the book's called Bellwether Blues. For those that are looking, I have, uh, have the book right here. The, one of the first things I learned is how you actually spell it. Uh, B-E-L-L-W-E-T-H-E-R is the spelling of Bellwether Blues. And you can find it on Amazon, Books A Million, Barnes & Noble. We have it in audio. Uh, we have it on Kindle. So making it as easily accessible as possible. And then our website is bellwetherbluesbook.com. And I have videos of the seven stories of those millennials that, that made that pivotal decision to change their voting persuasion from Obama to Trump. And I communicate why, what was the process of their story and what can we learn from their story? So all that information can be found at bellwetherbluesbook.com. And uh, there's, that's the way that you can reach out to us as well. There's an info box. Uh, my email address is my first name, Jonathan at bellwetherbluesbook.com. Okay. And, you know, politically, I do hope that actually we see a kind of a clean slate because um, it, it is a, quite honestly a disgrace at the present moment. And, uh, and I think a reflection from people around the world just saying enough is enough. It's, it's time just to start again, pull the plug and start again and go back to what is the leadership meant to stand for? And it's meant to stand there uh, for the people. It's meant to represent the people. It's meant to uh, bring the country together, to make it thrive, to make it grow, uh, to be in unison, united. And I think we have forgotten that. And we've seen divided. As I say, we divided, we fall. We need to see unison and people come back together. And to do that, we just need to see some fresh faces and fresh point of views and people taking responsibility of their own decision making and what part they are going to be to play with it. Don't just point at the finger, the three pointing back at you. What are you going to do about it? How are you going to change? Because you are the change that we seek. Thank you so much for sharing with us here today, Jonathan. Thanks for having me on, Sarah. I, I appreciate it. I wish you all the best. God bless you and your listeners. Thank you, and to you too. Until next time, folks, lots of food for thought here. Don't forget to share the show. Have a conversation about it. Don't argue, please. Just converse. Lay it out on the table and really look at what are the common threads and what you can do about it. Until next time, bye for now. We hope you enjoyed the show. We look forward to bringing you more shows please go to selfdiscoverymedia.com slash shows and you will see the incredible lineup of genres and shows that we have for you. We are here to make a difference in your life. Thank you for listening.